in a very real sense, the world is in turmoil. At an international level, terrible things happen all the time. It's far bigger than Democrats and Republicans and so forth. For example, the United Nations Commission has accused North Korea of atrocious crimes against human rights. They say that there is, quote, compelling evidence of torture, execution, and arbitrary imprisonment, deliberate starvation, and an almost complete lack of free thought and belief, end quote. China has been following suit of late, resuming a serious campaign of persecution against Christians. But it's not just the East where great wickedness occurs. The West is guilty of atrocious crimes against humanity as well, murdering millions of our most vulnerable in that place where they should be the most safest, their mother's womb. There is truly a lot of terrible things. There are truly a lot of terrible things happening in this world. These are just a few examples at an international level. Big things that, where do you even begin to address them? And then at the personal level, people that we love get sick and suffer and die. People that we look up to let us down. People that we trust betray us. People who should take care of us abuse us and take advantage of us. Into this world, God, through the Apostle, says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Into this world of suffering and turmoil, God, through the Apostle, says in Philippians 4 and verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. At first, this is baffling. How could we possibly rejoice? Surely we, may, we must adopt a mindset of ignorance is bliss. and Keep the TV off. And don't read the newspaper. In fact, you're going to have to stay off social media too, because now it's not just major media outlets, but even just the social media interactions of private individuals which alert us to the happenings in the world. And then I suppose we'll have to refrain from truly loving people because when you love, it's inevitable that you're eventually going to have your heart wrung. You can't love without pain. If only because eventually the people that you love or the things that you love die or fade or perish. And so we keep our hearts closed, keep our TVs off, keep the newspapers in the stands instead of in our homes and on our desks and tables and by our easy chairs. And we adopt the mentality, ignorance is bliss and isolation is safe. And we read our Bibles and we go, Rejoice in the Lord always. Now maybe it's 
possible. And we had just adopted that kind of interpretation of this verse and that kind of approach as to what it might mean. We're going to look at this verse today, breaking it down into three parts. Essentially, the three significant words of the sentence, rejoice in the Lord always. First, rejoice. Secondly, in the Lord. And third, always. And we'll find that it actually doesn't mean what I just described, but something else altogether. Let's begin with rejoice. First of all, rejoicing is compatible with sorrow and grief. Let's get that out there. Rejoicing is compatible with sorrow and grief. Paul wrote this, after all, from prison. Philippians was written from prison. Do you think that Paul was oblivious and unaffected by suffering? That he had the TV off and hadn't read the newspaper and had isolated himself from any danger to his comfort and well-being? Well, of course not. He's in prison. He couldn't take the approach, ignorance is bliss and isolation is bliss, because he was neither ignorant nor isolated. He was very much in the thick of things, in the midst of the turmoil. Writing, rejoice. In 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10, this same Paul says that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And in John 11.35, we have the shortest verse in the Bible. Two words. Jesus wept. Do you think that Jesus was disobedient to this imperative? Rejoice in the Lord. Was Jesus not rejoicing in the Lord when He wept? We see that sorrow, pardon me, joy, is compatible with sorrow and grief. You may be sorrowful and yet rejoicing. Rejoicing, therefore, is not the same as being chipper. John Piper contrasts joy with being chipper, bouncy, light-hearted, and playful. The imperative here is not be chipper, bouncy, light-hearted, and playful in the Lord always. That's not what is expected of us. That's not what is commanded of us. If so, we would just have to take that approach like an ostrich and stick our head in the sand. Or that approach like a little child playing hide and seek, who covers his eyes and figures that if he can't see you, you can't see him. And if I can't see the problems in the world, therefore there must not be any problems in the world. If what is expected of us is being chipper, bouncy, lighthearted, and playful in the Lord... That's the approach we're going to have to take. But as we've seen, that's not what is expected. You don't have to paste the perma-smile on your face in order to be always rejoicing. Rather than being a reality-ignoring or a reality-denying feeling that we can only experience by insulating ourselves and isolating ourselves from any suffering or any risk of suffering. Joy, the kind of joy that is commanded of us here, is a reality embracing enjoyment of something that transcends our suffering. 
Let me explain that. If the source of our suffering is heavier, deeper, and bigger than the source of our joy, then our joy could not persist in the face of suffering. But if the source of our joy, if the source of our joy is heavier, bigger, and deeper than the source of our suffering, then our suffering cannot rob us of joy. If our joy is in life, then we lose our joy when we're faced with death. If our joy is in health, then we lose our joy when we're faced with sickness and disease. If our joy is in the acceptance and approval of others, then we lose our joy when we experience the rejection of others. And on and on it goes, you get the idea. We need a source of joy that is heavier, deeper, and bigger than the sources of our suffering. We need to enjoy something that our suffering cannot take away from us. We need to enjoy something that death cannot touch. We need to enjoy something that disease cannot touch. We need to enjoy something that rejection cannot touch and poverty cannot touch and so on and so forth. Something that time cannot touch. We need a source of joy that is heavier, deeper, bigger than the sources of our suffering. And that something that transcends everything else is a someone. We are instructed, and this brings us to our second point, to rejoice in the Lord. We need to learn to enjoy the Lord. We already saw that Paul was in prison when he wrote the book of Philippians. He was not, therefore, oblivious to suffering. We can't just say, easy for you to say, Paul, from the comfort of your living room, while you watch Netflix and nothing bad is going on in your life and you are enjoying good health and nobody around you is sick or dying and so on and so forth. Easy for you to say, Paul. That's not open to us. Because Paul's writing from a Roman prison. But the source of Paul's joy was heavier and deeper, bigger than the suffering he faced. Paul rejoiced in the Lord. Another biblical writer who dealt with this subject was King David in the Old Testament. His life was almost perpetually in danger. In his youth, he was keeping his father's flock, and we know that at least there were lions and bears that he had to fight off. And then there was Goliath, and then the king was trying to kill him, Saul. After David himself became king, his sons murdered one another. One of his sons raped one of his daughters and led a rebellion against him, overthrowing his kingdom. David is one who suffered immensely. And yet in spite of this, in Psalm 16, which we read earlier in the service, 
David says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. In other words, the Lord is what I have. He's my portion. And then what kind of portion is he? How does David assess this? The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So in spite of all this suffering, David says, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is what I have. I might not have a functional family. I might not have physical safety. I might not have low stress. But what I do have is the Lord. And that's not a consolation prize. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Behold, I have a beautiful inheritance. In your presence, David says, there is fullness, fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Obviously for David, God was a source of joy. David, like Paul, rejoiced in the Lord. And this meant at least three things. Enjoying God's character or essence or who He is. Enjoying God's actions, what He does. And then enjoying communion or companionship with Him. Fellowship with Him. Let's look at each of those aspects of rejoicing in the Lord in turn in the life of David before we circle back around to Philippians. First, David enjoyed God's character or who, who, who God is. Listen to a sampling of his other writings. Psalm 63 and verse 3. Your steadfast love is better than life. Your steadfast love is better than life. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. So apart from anything that he does, he is great. And he has steadfast love. The heavens declare his righteousness. Again, these are attributes of God. The perfection of beauty. God shines forth. David enjoys God who is the steadfastly loving one. The one who is faithful to his covenant promises. David enjoys the righteous one. David enjoys the beautiful one. He enjoys God's character, God's essence, who God is. He enjoys God's actions. He says in Psalm 68, 5, Father to the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. Psalm 46 and verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. David enjoys not only who God is, but what God does. David enjoys Seeing God be a father to the fatherless. Be a protector of widows. Come to their aid. David enjoys how God offers refuge and strength and help to those in trouble. To those who need such things. So David enjoys who God is and David enjoys what God does. 
But David also enjoys communion with God. Relationship with God. He writes in Psalm 119, 164, Seven times a day I praise you. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God. It goes on, it's a lament. Why have you forsaken me? We know that one. But the point for the purposes of what I'm trying to bring across right now is he owns him as his God. My God. My God. David is not content to rejoice in God from afar, at arm's length. The way we might rejoice in a televised performance of an athlete or a musician. There may be something objectively good that we see on TV that we rejoice in, but we have no personal connection to the person whose performance we enjoy. David doesn't want to rejoice like that, but wants to draw close to God and own Him as His God. As Christians, all the aforementioned ways of enjoying God are open to us. Enjoying who He is. Enjoying what He does. And drawing near to Him and owning Him as our God. The Psalms are the prayer book or the hymn book of all God's people, not a select few. And so we may cry out with David, My God! My God! This God revealed to us in the pages of Scripture may be our God. May be your God. You may cry out, My God! My God! You may say with David, seven times a day will I praise you. And in the New Covenant, we see God even more clearly than David did. We have more grounds for enjoying God's character and actions than David did. We also have the opportunity for deeper communion with God than David did. We may have a deeper apprehension of God's character. This is not to say that God changed. This is to recognize simply the concept of progressive revelation in Scripture. That what, for example... Cain and Abel knew of God in that first generation after the fall was considerably less than what we know now. And that as history and time developed, God progressively revealed who He is. We may have a deeper apprehension of God's character at this juncture than even David could have had then who God is in His essence. And this is because Jesus is the noonday sun and the sunrise of progressive revelation. What does steadfast love and righteousness look like when it manifests itself? Well, it looks like God 
dealing with Abraham the way he said he would and dealing with Isaac and Jacob the way he said he would and so on and so forth. It looks like God making a nation of Abraham's descendants at Sinai like he said he would and so on and so forth. But most ultimately, it looks like God become flesh to dwell among us. To satisfy His own justice and keep His covenant promises in their most ultimate fulfillment. A God who loves lepers, lost causes, the poor, the outcast, and dies for his enemies in order to keep his covenant promises at the most ultimate level. We may look back with greater amazement at God's actions than David could have. Of course, creation is the same. We, we look at creation and David looks at creation. Creation's creation. But what was the greatest act of redemption that God had accomplished so far by the time David lived? Surely his people would have to say the exodus from Egypt. It was the defining act up to that point. As Israel would tell its own story of how God came to their rescue. And yet as glorious as the old covenant exodus was, the new covenant exodus is more so. We're familiar, of course, with the concept that at the transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus, they spoke to him of his exodus. It says in the Greek. And then believe it or not, we may have deeper communion with God than David could have. Rather than dealing with God in shadows and types, we deal with God through substance and realities. We don't deal with God through a temple, through a priest, with earthly sacrifices. We deal with God through Christ, fully disclosed to us, who is the heavenly reality to whom all these things pointed. Of course, David knew something of Christ. David was saved by grace through faith in God's gracious provision of a Messiah as we are. And yet what David knew of these things, what David was able to perceive of these things, was less than what we have seen. I tell you, many prophets and kings longed to see what you see, Jesus says to his contemporaries. And so we can see clearly, and from our vantage point in history, and from the revelation that God gives us in Scripture, everything that David saw, and then some. And so if David would write, the Lord is my portion, and the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, I have a beautiful inheritance. How much more could we say the same things? And so Paul writes, again back to Philippians now, Rejoice in the Lord always. If we go back and we trace God's progressive revelation of Himself to us in the Scriptures, who He is, what He's done, 
And we have as much and more grounds for rejoicing in who God is and what He's done, as David did. We have, like Paul, grounds enough to be in a prison and yet to rejoice in the Lord. We can have deep joy in Christ despite, in the face of, in defiance of our suffering. Because who God is and what He has done is heavier and bigger and deeper than our suffering. I've shared this quote with you before, but I'll share it again because it's so good. Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch Christian during World War II who was imprisoned at Ravensbrook along with her sister. This woman and her sister knew suffering. She survived the war and had a wonderful post-war ministry of encouragement testifying to God's grace in the midst of her suffering. She became relatively well-known. Her sister, less so, as she died, I believe it was actually during the war. But Betsy, her sister, said, There is no pit so deep that Christ is not deeper still. And so we rejoice Not in a reality denying or reality ignoring, bouncy, chipper, lighthearted, playful way. We rejoice in a reality embracing way that has a heavier, bigger source of joy than the suffering in our lives. And the only source of joy so heavy so big, so deep is God so we rejoice in the Lord but rejoicing in the Lord we may rejoice always in every circumstance no matter what is happening we may rejoice in the Lord if our joy is in life as I said earlier, then we'll lose our joy when we're faced with death. If our joy is in health, then we will lose our joy when we are faced with sickness or disease. If our joy is in the acceptance or approval of others, then we'll lose our joy when we're rejected. But, if our joy is in Christ, then even death cannot rob us of joy. If our joy is in Christ, then sickness and disease cannot rob us of joy. If our joy is in Christ, then rejection and abandonment by even our nearest and dearest cannot rob us of joy. And so we find ourselves sorrowful and yet always rejoicing because there is no pit so deep that Christ is not deeper still. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation 
or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Will these things separate us from the love of God in Christ? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When all around my soul gives way, He then, well all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit has come to us, offering Himself to us in the Gospel. Christ Jesus was sent according to the Father's plan and purpose into this world as we considered a few days ago, to seek and save the lost. He lived as a substitute for lawbreakers, as a law keeper. He died as a substitute for lawbreakers, as a wrath bearer. And He rose that all who trust in Him might rise with Him to newness of life. And... Having come to trust in Christ Jesus, you are reconciled to God, adopted into His family. You have a judicial pardon and therefore a clean record. You have the promise of ongoing transformation into the image of His Son and life everlasting. To name just a few of the pleasures at His right hand. This reality of the Gospel is heavier and deeper and bigger than whatever suffering we face. And so, having come to trust in Christ Jesus, we too may say, when all around my soul gives way, He then at that moment, in that place, is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. I'm not crumpled by my suffering. I am sorrowful, yes, but always rejoicing. And in on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. So Christian, rejoice in the Lord. Always.